Mr. Barton, Maths Podcast, with me, Craig Barton, and once again I'm joined by my co-host, Joe Morgan. Hello again, Joe. Good evening, Craig. Good evening, Joe. Now, uh, again, before we crack on here, it's the end of day two. We're a bit knackered. They're calling this uh, conference fatigue. We're halfway through. You've had a particularly busy day, Joe, haven't you? I have, and then we had a few drinks last night, and I'm just very, very tired today, but we've... we've um, We're going to battle through. We're going to battle through. We are, and, and it's um, it's all been great. So I don't want to be negative. It's been a fantastic day. Just a lot's happened. And t- two things we need to bring up straight away. So the first is the campaign to get people calling it Brickman. <laughs> I won't exactly say is, is catching fire just yet. I haven't heard anyone else use that term yet, but we'll keep working on yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We've got a whole evening and another couple of days <laughs> to do it. And finally, I'm slightly in awe here because you've changed from last night. You, last night you were just Joe Morgan, and now you've this new role. Officially sworn in. What do you call these days? <laughs> and uh, um, we had the AGM today, and I am now the chair of the Publicity and Media Committee for the Mathematical Association. There we go. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Right, Joe. So we've got a ton of sessions to get through, and we didn't go to the same session at any point. So we've kind of doubled the form from from last night's podcast. So why don't we kick off? So session one. What did you go to? Um, I went to uh, Challenging Topics in GCSE Mathematics, which was by Carol Knight, um, who is the Director for Secondary Mathematics at the NCETM. Um, and um, part of that session was um, Dawn Denya, who I know very well from Twitter. She stood up and did um, a part of that session. Um, it was lovely because it was um, very much aimed at teachers like me. You know, this is all what I do every day with my Year 11 class. It was, and, and I suppose not just um, aimed at people that teach GCSE because they made the point a number of times that for challenging topics, we need to think about how we teach them at Key Stage 3, obviously. Yes. Um, it was um, we, at the beginning. We talked about um, some topics that students find hard at GCSE. Um, my first answer there is always bearings. I find that a topic that students always struggle with, yep. and linear graphs. So they're always my top yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, the uh, person I was speaking to suggested um, ratios, which yes, obviously on the new GCSE, um, there's some really tough questions on ratio. Yes. Um, and then we sort of um, we talked in the room about other people's ideas for topics that students find hard, but then we looked at what the uh, information from the awarding bodies on actual questions that yes. had um, been uh, done badly in last year's GCSE and that's really interesting I love looking at exam questions and it's something that people should do more in department meetings at school should mm. sit around looking at exam questions and say why was this one answered badly um, like for example there was a trigonometry question on the foundation paper last year and it was just a right angle triangle hypotenuse labeled eight um, angle labeled 72 and they had to work out the um, opposite so it was it was pretty straightforward because it was just um, no context or anything no sure. exactly and it was and it wasn't even that the um, thing they were working out was in the denominator you know it was literally just um, sine 72 times 8 equals x so you know it's so straightforward as straightforward as um, right angle trigonometry yeah. gets 20% of students got it right on foundation Whoa. Um, and a lot of people in the room were suggesting that they think that a lot of foundation teachers just skipped teaching it because they were like well that's only going to be maybe three marks of GCSE we're not going to spend a week or two teaching it so let's just skip it and and that's really interesting because then you don't know um did they get that question wrong because they find it hard or because they hadn't been taught it and that's and we just don't get that information from the um from the exams that's interesting um and stuff like that and like simultaneous equations pretty 
fairly straightforward simultaneous equations question, although it had negatives in, and it was something like it was three three x plus y equals negative uh, four, and three x minus four y equals six. Now they both had a three x in them, um, so it's a fairly straightforward simultaneous equation yeah. question. Um, 81% of foundation students got zero on that question. Right. Um, but quite mo most students on higher got all three marks. Um, and that's really interesting what's going on there because for them to get zero suggests that that isn't then the, the trickiness with the negatives. And in fact, it's just a how do I start the simultaneous equations yes. question. Um, and I think, I think the most interesting thing about the whole session for me was looking at questions and thinking, why did they lose the marks? Um, and is it... You know, because it's not it's not as obvious. It's not just that they can't do simultaneous equations, or maybe it is. You know, and there was one on uh, a higher question: prove x squared plus x plus one is always positive. Only three percent on higher, three percent of students got that right. Um, so I, I think this is all fascinating. So the oh, whole session yeah. was, and and actually, I'll just say one more example, yeah, which no. which I just thought was particularly interesting. It was an error interval question, where. It says, say it gives you say a number, uh, um, the uh, 4.5 is given correct to the nearest centimetre, um, and you have to fill in the error interval. Now, if they give the inequality symbols, so they give the, the lower, in a, they give the less than or equal to, and then the less than, and the students just write the numbers in, and that's fine. That's just yes. a bounds question, yeah. so that's fine. But in the, a similar question in, in a different exam board, where they hadn't provided the inequality symbols, and the students had to put the right inequality symbols, they they were getting it wrong. So they could do it when they the inequality symbols were given and they couldn't do it when they weren't given, which then just suggests that they have no idea what's going on. Yeah. They just write it's just totally procedural if they're writing down the upper and lower bounds and they don't really understand what those bounds are saying That's and the whole idea of their interval. So it's really interesting that these very subtle differences in exam questions um, can tell you a lot about understanding and uh, it was it's really interesting. Um the um the final thing I want to say about the session, um was that um, they, we were given the worst topics on higher last year, which was um, proof, inequalities, negatives, units, like compound measures, um, ratio and proportion, and geometric reasoning. Just say the same one more time. So proof, yep. um, inequalities, which I was surprised by. I never think of like inequalities. Linear and quadratic, well, or just, uh, just inequalities. Just that's the, it wasn't sure. enough information, really, so we'd yeah. have to look at that in more detail. Negatives. And what's that? Just like negative numbers? I don't know. And that's the thing. It's not that's enough information, line, is it? Is it? Okay. Um, units, ratio and proportion, and geometric reasoning. Jeez, that's, that's like the whole of the GCSE, right? Well, it's, it's all the it's big things, isn't it? Yeah. But foundation... The worst topics on last year's GCSE, metric units, bearings, algebra, so that was factorising yeah. and substituting, the whole of algebra, yeah, 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 <laughs> simultaneous equations, fractions, decimals and percentages, and ratio and portion. Again, yeah, now I think about it, it's just everything, isn't it? Yeah. No, I'll tell you what, Joe, this is, this is good, this, because there's a bit of a segue. It's almost as if we planned this. Because I did a session with, with Andrew Taylor. Yeah. It was a bit later on in the day. But my big point there, and it got a mixed reception in the room, I'm not going to lie, <laughs> is that um, QLAs are an absolute waste of time. So question level okay, analysis yeah. are a waste of time. And right. it touches on what you've said there. So say, for example, you uh, you give your kids a mark or a PLC or oh, yeah. whatever, mm. PPE, whatever we're supposed to call them. Yeah, PPE. Um, yeah. I don't know what PLC, that's definitely not it, but PPE. <laughs> you, you give your kids a PPE. Um, and my point I was trying to make was that you looking at the scripts, you've got all this really interesting data. So say you take like a simul that simultaneous equations that you were speaking about before, yeah. five mark simultaneous equations question. You've got the scripts in front of you and you can see uh, 
the kids who've got kind of one or two marks where they've where they've started to go wrong the kids who've got zero who've at least attempted the question mm-hmm. you can see where it's started to go wrong in the process but as soon as you then put a actual number on a spreadsheet mm-hmm. so you start saying this kid got naught this kid got naught this kid got one yeah. you're losing all that rich data yeah. and you're, re- you're taking something that used to be rich and useful and reducing it to something that's absolutely meaningless because you take a kid who got zero um, on a simultaneous equations question you don't know whether they got zero because they didn't know what the question was asking they didn't or could it be that they didn't understand the mathematics involved yeah. in the question could it be that they couldn't get started, but if they'd have been able to get started, they might have been able to access the other three mm-hmm. or four marks? Could it be that they've lost confidence because the question before was a disaster mm-hmm. for them? Could it be because they just couldn't be asked at that point in, in, in the paper? There's question 21, they, they didn't want to do any more. So I've got a real bugbear with mm-hmm. question level analysis. I hate them. I think, yeah. they're, I think they're a waste of time. And the final thing before I go, because I could rant about yeah. this for ages, my final point, Joe on QLAs, is I think they take up a lot of time for teachers to do, and there's an opportunity cost to that time, because all the time we we spend filling them out on the computer, we could be planning lessons and, and doing stuff with that. Mm-hmm. Even if the kids fill them out themselves, I still think that's an opportunity cost, because that takes time yeah. for kids to do it, yeah. and then the onus is on them to, to say, right, I've got naught on this question, why did I get naught, mm-hmm. what is this question asking, and so on. But my biggest issue with QLAs is the decisions teachers make based on mm-hmm. them. People go mental on a QL thing. Yeah. So a, a kid's got a naught out of five on a simultaneous equation. Right, panic, panic, panic. You need to do a load of work on simultaneous equations. Mm-hmm. Whereas a kid has got five out of five on a simultaneous equation. Oh, you never need to look at one again. Just relax. Mm-hmm. And it's, I have a real problem with these. I think people, and I'm being guilty of this, Spend too long doing them and then overreact to the results from them. What's your take? On I that? actually, I, I, I thought I was the only person that doesn't like QLAs. Um, I so I did my QLAs for my December mocks over Christmas, and I literally, um, I read out numbers and my husband puts them in the spreadsheet, and it's yeah. just ridiculous that this is the sort of thing I do in my Christmas holidays, and my poor <laughs> husband has to input. And for what me. do you do? What once? So once you well, got in the spreadsheet, well, that's the thing out? is that I because I'm not a big fan of them. This year I did it, but only because I had a free trial for Pinpoint. Yeah. And I uploaded it and then I got booklets for my students, which I then could only afford to print the first of the three booklets. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that was my idea was that I'd try the booklets, which is why I did them. But, it, but even just, sorry to interrupt, even on the booklets, we've an issue there, right? Because yeah. if a kid gets full marks on a question, yeah. they're not getting that question in the booklet, right? It's, it's, no. it's, it's kind of assumed that that's absolutely fine. Yeah. yeah. Whereas they could have just got lucky on that particular question yeah. and so yeah. on. It's... So yeah, I thought I'd try the booklets. Um, and then, but what was, the thing is that then, when I went through the uh, PPEs with them nice. in January, now I had to wait until they had a results assembly. So we basically, we're given yes. this, it ends up being kind of a month between you marking it and going through it with them, yes. but you're not allowed to go through it them straight away. So when I went through it, I basically screenshotted all the questions where less than half the class had got them, or there was 50% or mm. less in terms of total marks. And they're the ones I chose to go through. And then everything else, I'm like, right, you take that paper home and you go through it individually and you that you yes, spend ages yes, on that. Yes, but yes. I'll go through any question where half the class or less got it wrong. So I am... Um, so that helped me just to remember which ones to go through. But with my March mocks, which I've just recently done, we didn't have a results assembly, so I was allowed to give them back straight away. Mm-hmm. So I marked, and the next day, they're getting their PPE papers back from me, yes. and I didn't need to do a QLA, so I, and I skipped it. All my colleagues did it, and mm-hmm. I was a bit naughty. I didn't do my QLA, but I haven't got time for that. And I, and I, I, But I remembered 
the key things to go through because I'd just marked them. Yes. So then I knew what the common misconceptions were and I knew exactly what to say when I went through the paper. I was like, right, loads of you got this one wrong. Let's look at this question. Yes. And I didn't need the QLA to remind me. So um, I think that this whole, being able to give the papers back straight away and me going through things, um, I don't need a QLA. Yeah, and not, not reducing things to a number yeah. that's less meaningful than what you had but, before I mean, you put it into Yeah, basically, number. when I'm marking, and I don't understand, surely everyone does this, when I'm marking, I've got a post-it next to me mm -hmm. and I'm writing down common misconceptions. So if I'm marking question by question, which I think most teachers do, and I'm marking question five, and a lot of them have made the same mistake, I just make a little note. Yes. And I don't need a spreadsheet for that. Yeah, and then yeah, I go yeah, and yeah. I mention that. And that's in class. the useful thing, the note. It's not yeah. a spreadsheet, yeah. it's a result of that. Yeah. It's, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I could go on for hours about that. There's one thing yeah, I, cool. I just noticed in my notes, and I just thought I'd mention this in case any teachers don't know about this. Dawn Denyer in this session was um, talk, talking to us about um, some really lovely tools for teaching um, kinematic stuff, so sort of uh, velocity and uh, speed time graphs and that sort of yeah. thing. And she talked about the time button on the calculator. And so on, on a calculator, a normal calculator that students have, there's a button with a dot, a comma, and two commas. And it will convert. So if you put 2.5, it turns it into 230. You're joking. <laughs> So this this always been there. And, Did you know about this? Um, I think I, I kind of knew about it, but I forgot. I don't use it. And now I'm thinking, why don't I use that? Um, and there's lots of people, and there's someone in the room said, oh, no, that's cheating. And it's like, well, actually, we should be encouraging good use of calculators. Yeah. There's been a study recently about good use of calculators and how this isn't something we shouldn't be saying, you know, obviously we want them to be able to do it without a calculator because they might come up in a non-calculator yeah, exam. Course, of course. But as a that check, mean, yeah, why would you not use it? So I just thought I'd mention that because I think listeners of the podcast, if they've not seen that button, they just want to get their calculator now and just have a little play with it. Um, because that is such a good way of checking. That's incredible. A time button. And that's fine. Button. Describe it one more time. And it's got a, a dot, a comma, and two commas, I believe. I haven't got a calculator dot, with right, me. Okay. Something like that. Dot, right. Look that up, listeners. Yeah. Time button. <laughs> if, if, you, if, you what, if you take nothing else away, that is, that is a good one. All right, that's an excellent joke. Well, so first session, um, I went to... This hooked me in straight away. And I had a little tip off from Andrew Taylor last night that this was the one I had to go to. A brief in brackets, History of Problem Solving by Paul Metcalf, 1982 to 2017. Now, this was fascinating. This was fascinating because I'm going to give you a little timeline here, Joe. Yeah. Right? Oh, I'll tell you what, we could do this as a quiz. Oh, God, I won't know anything. So I'm going to give you a year and something big happened in this year. What, to All do right. with maths education? To do with maths education, right? <laughs> I don't okay. Here know. we go, here we go. Put you on the spot. Listeners, play along at home. We actually have a quiz okay? later as well. This will warm you up, prime in this, so you'll be fine. Right. 1982. <laughs> Something big happens in 82. In maths education? Yeah. You were born, Craig. That, that is true. That is, that, the is, that is the big. You know what? Last night you said something happened in 1982. I wonder if it's the same thing. No, because oh. I'll be honest, <laughs> listeners, I wasn't aware of the specific year this happened. I don't means, know. Pass. So this is the Cockroft report. Oh, was that, exactly. I, I, was, I was thinking Cockroft, but I thought that was late 80s. Will so listeners listeners believe Joe Morgan there that she was thinking terrible? This? I've done a presentation on this in my <laughs> skit. <laughs> Right, so 82 Cockroft comes out. So that's, and uh, Paul, who by the way, Paul Metcalf, he's a brilliant presenter. I absolutely loved it. Really good style about him. So Cockroft comes out in 82. And for Paul, his point there was that's when this was a kind of impetus to start bringing in, making problem solving explicit in lessons and eventually led to coursework. Um, so Cockroft comes out. Now, but then things get a bit dark here because, Joe, what happened for the first time in maths education in 1992? Um, 
I mean, there's no way you're going to. This do is that. so. It's some. It's something to do with uh, like qualifications or coursework or something. It's something like that, and it's bad news for schools. Bad news for schools. It's exciting, isn't it? Listeners are loving this. I can tell. Sorry, <laughs> no pass. So that is when league tables are published oh, for the first time. I'm really too young for this quiz. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I, I, I had no idea about I this. I was at school and in. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to tell you this next one because you, you're not going to get this. I don't think. But listeners can play along here. In 1990. Okay. Well, actually, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. In 1997, something happens to coursework. Well. I didn't know this, but this is interesting. So I did my GCSEs in '97. Yeah. I don't remember doing coursework, but was you it, must have. You do, would have did. Done I definitely it. do it. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. guess I had one of those nice teachers who didn't make me realise I was being assessed at the time. Or maybe even excellent. wrote it for you, which we'll get onto in a second. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> this could be an issue. Well, so I don't know what happened. So this is interesting. It's then the uh, requirement came in that coursework had to represent a maximum, and I think it was fixed actually, of twenty percent of the overall grade. Before then, you had some qualifications that were hundred percent coursework, or you could choose eighty yeah. percent. Coursework, 60% yeah. and so on. Uh, so 97, coursework's limited to, to 20%. Yeah. And the reason being, it was tied into these league tables because uh, people started to realise that it was very hard to standardise coursework across schools and there was maybe dodgy practices going on. Yes. That uh, if we're now comparing schools on these league tables, oh, we need to reduce... Interesting, isn't it? So yeah. we need to reduce the, the amount well, of makes uh, sense. coursework. Yeah. 2003, something happens to coursework. Um... I, well, I, I see. I think coursework. I'm thinking about when coursework went, and I think it wasn't long before I became a teacher. So it must have been late 2000s that coursework went. Maybe it wasn't compulsory anymore. Okay. You, well, so you, the next date is going to be when it's gone. But in okay. 2003, it splits into two, and the data handling component oh became. So now we've got a user applying and the data so handling. This is like one. the Mayfield School thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. then finally. In 2009, maths coursework is so, abolished. So not com- it's not that it's not compulsory, it's just not allowed. From so, 2009 onwards. Right, so so the, so the boards aren't allowed to have it as an element anymore. Exactly. Okay. It's gone. Now, it's interesting, right? So a little timeline there. So from uh, 82 through to 2009. I think now, I got zero on that quiz. This is really Yeah, I know. Yeah. We should, we should, I'm now thinking, can I switch teams for tonight? <laughs> um, now, this is interesting because um, what Paul then went on to say <laughs> is he went to outline some reasons for coursework, which I thought was very interesting. Now, listeners, a bit of background. My first two years of teaching, I think... Uh, I had to mark coursework and and obviously teach course teach the lessons for coursework and it was horrendous. Like the, the teaching yeah. was hard because it was very difficult not to essentially coach the kids through it. It was very hard not to say it would be a good idea if you wrote down this line. It would be a good idea if you did oh, yeah. this. Yeah. And it was tricky because it was I was brand new to teaching. I mm. didn't know the kind of mathematical journey these kids had been on. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the kids were like, I literally don't have a clue what I'm supposed to be doing here, sir. Mm-hmm. And then I'm thinking to myself, right, it's probably not ethical, I'll probably get sacked in, not ethical of me to, to, to say it's a good idea to do this. But at the same time, this is their future and I can help them and all mm-hmm. that. And yeah. I, I sense that all the colleagues were doing it and so on. Mm-hmm. But Paul outlined a load of reasons for coursework, that it was a great, that like the, the skills of planning, research, problem solving, real life situations... They're hard to assess in exam context, yes. but you've got time. Like, it's it's proper maths. You've got time yeah. to spend two or three weeks thinking about really, really interesting maths. 
The tasks themselves, which I've linked to on the podcast page, are great. They're your classic low barrier, high ceiling. They cover the entire ability range mm-hmm. because you've, they were accessed by kids who were getting an old grade F right up to an old A star. Yeah. So they were they were like some of the best tasks um, ever. Um, they were reflecting appropriate ways to... Kids had to communicate their findings, which was good for when they're in the workplace um, and all that kind of thing. It was great for creativity, got kids talking to each other and also I thought this was interesting it increased the real you could argue increased the reliability of the assessment because kids were spending longer on it whereas a GCSE exam two hours one and a half hours or whatever you can't assess the whole domain whereas in a coursework task if kids have spent 15 20 hours doing it yeah you could argue it's a better kind of judgment of their whole kind of mathematical yes, understanding. If, if assessed correctly exactly and, which yeah, then which came to all have, yeah. the problems and it's um and the big one he was straight in here the main reason and um, the, the problem of course one of the main reasons it went is it became high stakes because yeah. of league tables and that led to a lot of essentially cheating yes, cheating potentially by teachers yeah. um, and also like Paul googled maths coursework help oh. and there was like 330,000 yeah, sites and yeah. you, could buy, you could buy responses because these coursework tasks were the same or yeah. like Mayfield High and yeah. all that so for 15 quid you yeah. could buy essentially an A star piece of coursework so it and had this must to have go. been a problem in other subjects up until very recently because exactly. coursework has, as coursework has only recently gone in some subjects but the internet has of been course, a has huge been influence around, absolutely so yeah. it was fascinating but so I've linked to on the podcast page um, some lovely coursework tasks mm. um, staircases fencing oh, lines yes, crossover yeah. number grids mm. hidden fences and all that And I'm going to leave it with this. Paul made a really interesting point that he said that he'd like to basically see these tasks come back and be a regular part of kids' education. He'd like to see them as kind of end of term projects, not just end of summer term, but end of Christmas, end of Easter, end of summer. And it got me thinking to something Anne Watson said when I was interviewing her that... um, she described um, a lot of these end of summer, end of term tasks are like design a bedroom or go out into the car park and measure the area of the car park. And she said, what about the kid whose job it is just to hold the rope? Like, what are they getting out of the task? Whereas these are proper maths. These are proper maths tasks, yeah. these. Um, and the final thing that Paul said was what used to happen, I didn't know this, Joe, maybe you did, is that kids would start a task like this in year six in summer term and then bring the half-completed task to high school in year seven so the teacher could see, get an insight into their thinking, and then they would complete it in the first few weeks of year seven, and it really eased the transition because they were doing the same maths for the end of year six through to the start of year seven, Mm. and he said it was really good for transition and really good as a year seven teacher to, to see how kids were thinking. So it just made me think it's time to perhaps revisit some of these. And Paul... um gave loads of sources of these and I knew about the AQA and I knew about OCR have kind of coursework booklets mm. but I didn't know the Welsh board and um, WJEC have these activities and they've got all powerpoints and pdfs mm. with them and they're really nice so I'll yeah. link to those in the show yeah because teachers but, can use them in their teacher of course yeah. of course so yeah it was a fascinating session anyway what did you do session two Joe? um I went to see um Charlie Strip. Um, he talked about changes to mathematics education in England what has happened and what can we learn from it and interestingly he was saying that he did a uh, session four years ago at 
Brick Me 2014. Nice, nice. Um, and he um, was talking about the huge changes that were going to be coming over the years um, that, that followed that yes. Brick Me, which were the changes to UCSC and the changes to A-level. Um, and so now that's all happened. Um, and he was talking about kind of the things that have gone well. And he opened up the he opened up the floor to discussion. And so um, people were sort of giving their views on it, on various things, such as um, the pros and cons of having different awarding bodies, um, the um, uh, uh, sh- oh, this was interesting. Should all people be required to sit to GCSE maths at sixteen, or could they could they sit at eighteen if they're not ready at sixteen? Oh, so sit it for the first time later on. That's yes, um, and there, but there's all sorts of um, pros and cons there, yes. and, and I can see a lot of cons to that. Um, um, and, and again, it was all open for discussion. I mean, the thing on the awarding bodies, because I've had students ask before, why can't there just be one exam mm. board? And, and I always give the example of Scotland. And I might be wrong here, and I might ask <laughs> a Scottish teacher, tell me I'm totally wrong. But I believe in Scotland, all the exams are written by the SQA. Oh, I might be wrong about that. And I believe that. Um, therefore, they, they don't have as much pressure on them to provide support for teachers and high quality materials and stuff like that yes. because they have the monopoly on it. Yes. Whereas in this country, we are very fortunate that because they're in competition for, with each other, we get an amazing level of support from our awarding bodies. But we also have, um, you know, it, it, it's good for the quality of the um, exams that we use, yes. that they want to produce good exam papers. Um, and we all saw there were debacles in the past when, with because the government is doing the key stage two tests and that hasn't gone well mm. um, and it, and that doesn't happen so much with the examples although there have been not in maths but in other subjects yes. there have been problems with exams but I do think you know I, I you know the, the thing about the awarding bodies um, it was interesting because I mean Andrew Taylor was there to defend the awarding bodies yeah, so that yeah, was yeah, good yeah. Um, 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 then on the there was some discussion Sue Pope from the ATM mentioned the idea of gatekeeper qualifications which is like say an exam that every student in the country takes and it has, say, you have to get 60% to pass, let's say. So there's none of this it being tied to how the rest of the country does. It's you have to get a certain percent to pass and then you know what that student can do. And this tests all those essential skills. What age is this? Well, she's suggesting this would be kind of alternative to GCSE. Oh, right, okay. So so she was talking about gatekeeper qualifications and then how there'd be then another qualification for those who want to kind of go and study at at, at A-level and stuff like that. Someone mentioned what they do in Wales at the moment where they have a numeracy GCSE and then they have maths GCSE. And everyone takes numeracy and those that want to study at a high level, I believe, they take maths. I might be wrong about that. But it was just interesting because there was this discussion about... um, different qualifications and then also some discussion about curriculum um and, and and my question that I didn't ask at the time but I was in a room full of people who were very experienced been around a long time have done an awful lot in terms of influence and government policy and then and then Charlie talked about the thing about how say in Japan they study less topics but better and then mm. they they do better on international testing like Tim's tests um and I thought, well, but there are a lot of people in this in that room who surely had a chance to influence the current GCSE curriculum. So why do we still have this really, really broad curriculum? And why, you know, because we've just been through curriculum reform, and we and it's still not quite right. Um, so I don't know. Maybe they, maybe it's the it's hard to influence the government decisions on this, or maybe people, you know, people are now changing their mind and want things to be less broad. I don't know. But I just felt that we've just been through curriculum change. I don't want more curriculum change no. in the foreseeable future. But there's lots of people saying the curriculum's still not right. So it's like, oh, don't, let's not go through all this yeah, again anytime geez. soon. But um, I mean, yeah, the curriculum is still could do with the curriculum and the qualifications. 
um, are not right in a number of ways. Um, and I think there's, it's just such high level, I like looking at mass education from a teacher's perspective, as in what do I do in my classroom, but I also am really interested in the high level strategic stuff about how to move the country forward in terms of quality of mass education and curriculum and qualifications. It's all really interesting. So I think, um, you know, there's nothing specific I want to say about the session other than um, that, you know, it's the sort of stuff where Charlie talked about some of the really positive changes. Uh, he talked about core maths, he talked about the Smith Report, he talked about the work of the maths hubs. Um, someone raised a really good point that there are lots of schools who, especially secondaries, who don't know anything about maths hubs. Mm. And, and it was it was really interesting because I think that's true. I think that geographically, like my current um, maths hub, it's just too far for me to do anything with them. It's yeah. just, I can't, it's like, you know, I can't drive an hour after school on a Tuesday and it's just too far. So I think, um, but I'm now in my new job in September moving into a school that runs a maths hub or a, a, a federation that runs a maths hub. So I might be a bit more involved in them. Um, but I think... Um, this guy raising the point was right. Um, the maths hubs have got a long way to go. But Charlie then obviously raised the very important point that they're still pretty new. Yeah. If you're looking at things very high level and very kind of long-term change, then maths hubs are new. And, you know, people need to give them a chance um, because, you know, they, they've only, it's only been kind of four years and there's a lot more they can do. Okay, that sounds like, yeah. It was interesting. Very interesting yes. session. Fantastic. Now... <laughs> I went to my new specialist subject, oh, yeah. manipulatives. Yeah. So listeners who listen to our conference takeaway at the end of uh, the Kettering Maths Conf will know that that was my kind of baptism, baptism of fire into the world of manipulatives when I went to Bernie Westercott's session and he was solving simultaneous equations with four-year-olds. <laughs> and I thought, what the flipping heck's going on here? So I've made it my mission, so I think I'm going to be interviewing Bernie, to immerse myself in the world of manipulatives. And Joe, you're a bit of a manipulative sceptic. Like me, oh, wasn't that, yeah. that be safe to say? Yeah. You don't use them a lot. I, I just, yes, I just, I am, I am, I have not had time to explore them as thoroughly as I would have yeah. liked. Well, I've, I've, I'm going to change your life, right? Now, <laughs> okay. Because. So, first thing to say is run by uh, Michael Anderson um, from the STEM Centre. Right. And a little plug for the STEM Centre because he's got some wonderful stuff on mm. it. He was claiming something like 30,000 maths resources or something ridiculous and all the big guns are on there or all, all your big all your big classic resources um, are on there and also i didn't realize this it's been a while since i've been on it's been completely reorganized right. so if you go if you're teaching say place value or decimals and you go on he's picked out the best well the most popular six resources yeah. on each top on each topic yeah. area so i was quite happy with that but here's the thing if i say the word manipulatives to you mm -hmm. what comes to mind so something that students uh, use physically. So I think uh, quiz and error rods, um, Dean's blocks, um, algebra, algebra tiles, stuff like that. You're not thinking dominoes. Um, dominoes is a game I play with my children Correct. sometimes. Well, <laughs> your life's about to change because I would think now I've never used a domino in the classroom. No. I've never even considered it. <laughs> so I'm there and this, stack, this uh, box of dominoes is coming around and I'm thinking, what is going on here? Next thing... Michael is firing up this resource that's on the STEM Centre. I'm going to link to it, and it's called Dominoes, right? And it's a PDF, and I think it's about 40 or 50 pages, full of activities you can do with Dominoes. And it was amazing <laughs> because we were doing um, additions, we were doing multiplications, and what was really interesting was it made it, I mean, and this is, this is the whole point, and I've, I've, I've made a little quote because it was my one kind of insight I had during this, is that... 
it definitely made it less abstract because instead of kind of, when we were doing this addition properly, these addition problems where you had to make a certain total and you could use the dominoes, you could either have them horizontal, so it was like a two and a three would be 23, or you could turn them um, kind of portrait way. So instead of it being 23, it was a 20 and a 30, and then you put another domino next to it for the units. That probably makes no sense, but it, it makes sense in my head. So you could play around with these numbers and it just, it felt a lot easier than writing down two and three, then rubbing it out and okay, so on. It was yeah. good. It was like a physical, practical way of playing with numbers sure. that, that, that I quite liked. Um, the point somebody made, and this really got me, me thinking, was the good thing about dominoes and manipulatives in general, and this relates to David Spiel... Spiegelhalter. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> His point that, <clears throat> that one of the dangers with probabilities when we're dealing with samples, and samples aren't always representative of the population, the beauty of manipulatives like these dominoes is we had the entire population in front of us in terms right. of these dominoes. So we didn't, it wasn't abstract. We weren't having to kind of think of all the other things that weren't in front of us. Everything we needed was there. And it was fascinating just playing around with these. And as I say, we did addition, multiplication, uh, solving equations were involved. We had magic squares going all mm -hmm. with these, all with these dominoes. I tell you, I was sold on these. You yeah. know? I was absolutely sold on these. So um, I've linked to the uh, PDF that we used. Um, one question I have, though, is that, and I don't know what you think on this, Joe, there were some fascinating discussions happening in the groups that we were in. So somebody was saying, we had all the dominoes in front of us, and somebody, uh, we, we kind of arranged them in order, and somebody was saying, um, what happens if we took the four neighbouring dominoes? Is there a way we could work out their total? Is there a kind of algebraic structural relationship to it? And then somebody else said, what happens if we plotted these on a Cartesian grid? What shape would it form and all this? And I started thinking to myself, and this is, this is my failings as a teacher. A lot of my kids don't ask those kind of questions. Mm -hmm. And I often think when I go to activities like this and conferences and sessions like this, I always come away buzzing with ideas. And then sometimes I try them in the classroom. I'm disappointed because... Mm -hmm. I think they work really well in a group of keen teachers, mm -hmm. but sometimes with kids, and more often than not with kids, they, they're just like, all right, well, what should I do next? What yeah. do you want me to do next? And I don't know how you build up the same kind of culture that gets kids coming up with those ideas and asking those questions the same that teachers do. Does that make sense? And I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it, but I suppose some people listening to this might say you don't do it with our direct instruction style of teaching. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's... you know... And I guess, it, I guess it is goes back to inquiry, right? Because yes. I guess it's, it's kids asking these questions and I guess Andrew Blair would say, okay, so that that then provides the motivation for mm -hmm. kids to want to be taught how to, how to do it because they reach a stumbling block. Yeah. And I did, I, get, I got a bit of sense of that. I was, yeah. yeah, and it's, it's definitely giving me food for thought. And the final thing I'll say with these manipulatives is next thing that comes out, now you're going to love this. This, is, this has got you sold on this, right? <laughs> I love nothing more than a factor, right? Yeah. I love factors. And we had, um, we, had a num we had a number grid, but it wasn't your usual number grid. It wasn't numbered like 1 to 10 and then 11 to 20. It had 1 on the edge, and then it was 2 to 7, and then 8 to 13, and then 14 to 19. So it was in kind of groups of 6 going across, but 1 right. was kind of left on its own. I'm okay. like, what's going on here? And then we got a load of cubes. And the, the thing we had to do was, the activity was, we had to place, we had to make cube towers on each number, and the height of the tower oh, was yes. determined by how many factors okay. that number had. Yeah. So one had one cube, two had two, three had one, four had 
one, two, four, three cubes. So not prime factors, just total okay. factors. Okay, I see. So we're doing this, and I'm thinking to myself, first off, this is kind of good practice, because we're yeah. practicing making yeah. the factors. But then again, it made really concrete the relationship between the factors and the number. Because yeah. the way this grid was organized, all your primes were in two columns. I see, yeah. The column that had 6, 12, 18, 24, 30, the flipping towers were massive. Yeah. And I'd done this kind of stuff, kind of colouring in factors, but because you had the physical height mm. of these towers, it was it was really interesting. Yeah. And it just made me think, one thing I need to develop more is getting it more, less abstract yeah. for my kids. Yeah. And I guess the reason I haven't done that is because I've not really known how to, but also, and this sounds terrible, there's a hassle with manipulatives, isn't mm. there? There's a hassle handing them out, collecting them in, kids messing around and so on. How, how do we get around this? I, I don't, I mean, I don't know. And I, 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 I've been told before on Twitter, I've been told off for saying there's a class size issue. I complain a lot about my class sizes. So at, at my school, most classes are 34. Mm. They're pretty big and our classrooms are not big. Um, so even to sort of circulate around is hard going. Yes. Now, if I, ha if I was to hand out a card sort, then I can only use that once because I know that at the end there'll be bits all over the floor. Yeah, and right. so it's a similar issue with, you know, it, it, it's not just that that puts me off, it's also the fact that I feel like I need to be with the students a lot, helping them, yes. and that's much easier with a smaller group. Um, yes. So I think, you know, I would like to be having those discussions with, with all the students while they're working with their manipulatives and, and being very hands-on with them. And and with that with thirty four in a class where it's chaos and you can barely there's bags everywhere and coats yes. everywhere, I just find that really hard. So I think I, I can imagine that if I was teaching smaller classes, um, particularly key stage three, which I don't teach much of, I think I'd probably be able to have more of a go at this. My department doesn't really have any manipulatives that I can play with, but yeah. but if I did. I would, if we, I, I think I would sort of go on some training courses, you know, I'd actually want to know how to do it properly. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking the same. I'm thinking this could be my next thing for manipulatives. I might reissue my book, call it How I Wish I'd Wrote That Book or something like that, because I'm, <laughs> I, I'm turning a corner here. I might be manipulatives all the way. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interview Bernie and I'm going to ask him all these questions. Because you say about class sizes there, we, we almost witnessed the same thing because Michael, who was running the session, it was oversubscribed. Yes. And he didn't have enough manipulatives right, for exactly. everybody. Yeah. And he was coming around with the dominoes and people were saying, oh, I'm missing a domino, yeah, I'm yeah. missing a domino. So we lost kind of 10 minutes yeah. uh, before we could even get started. And like in a lesson, that 10 minutes is price. Yes, that's right. it, so, yeah. And, and, and then the behaviour goes, and I know that we shouldn't, you know, but behaviour is behaviour management is a fact yeah. of our lives. And if you're, and if you've got, if you're, if you, anything is causing the students not to be able to yes. work for the whole lesson, then behaviour goes, and that's a fact. So, um, I, I listeners. I'm not giving up on these manipulatives. Yeah. They're hooking me in here, but yeah. I'm going to find out more. You just I'm... need to be expert at using them. Yeah, and yeah. I'm going to speak to people who know far more than me, yes. and I'm going to get good at these. There so... are plenty of people who know a lot about manipulatives <laughs> yeah. who would definitely want to talk to you about them. So yeah. bring them on, is what I'm saying. <laughs> right, okay, so uh, a couple more sessions to chat about. So what did you do uh, session three? Uh, so I went to, I did the most <laughs> oh, fun yeah. thing yeah, I've ever done in my life. Yeah, yeah. Now the thing is, so I have made... So I did, went to pop-up maths, which was with David Sharp. Now, the company is called 
spaghetti maths. Nice. And they go into schools, primaries, and they do um, sessions, like enrichment sessions. Um, and he, we basically spent the hour, hour and a half making really fun things with uh, paper and card. And um, the reason I went to this session was because I love hexaflexagons. Yes. Um, now, you know, end of summer term, last week of term, a lot of my colleagues do things that I really don't approve of. They do lessons when no one's learning any maths and it really upsets me, and at Christmas as well. Um, I do basically um, my one lesson a year that's off, that's that's kind of uh, right. not where people aren't necessarily learning proper maths. Okay, yeah. and, um, and my lesson is always the hexaflexagon lesson, where I show the amazing Vi Heart videos. And if anyone's not seen those, you just need to look them up straight away. So Vi Heart... Um, has a series of three or four videos on hexaflexagons. And it's V-I-H-A-R-T. That's right, yeah. yeah. And she's, um, she talks about how, and I think the story goes something like this, but she tells it really well. So there's this, this I think he's a, a British guy, uh, goes to an American uni, and I'm sorry that I don't know who these mathematicians are, it's terrible. And he tears off a strip of paper because 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 British paper is wider than American paper, so his paper's too big for his folders. I mean, he strips off these bits of paper, and he's playing with them in his maths lectures, and he suddenly has this thing where he realises that he has a... Uh, something that's got two sides that's actually got three sides and it's quite it's awesome and it's mind-blowing it's like where's that third side come from and then her videos are brilliant because then she talks about how they set up hexaflexagon societies at and I can't remember it might have been Stanford or MIT or something and then like all these like very serious mathematicians are trying to figure out these things and the videos are great for any year group so my year sevens were fascinated by these videos um, my year elevens were um, my, uh, I've done it with Sitform just as like a little enrichment thing and they absolutely love the videos and then I get them making the hexaflexagons. Now it's quite hard to run a lesson, particularly if you don't have a well-behaved class yeah, yeah. on these because um, they can do the colouring and the folding but then when they have to actually do the flexing bit they just need a little bit of help sure. and again you've got 34 kids yep. in the class and one teacher, you just can't get around to them all. Um, so what I liked about today was that he gave out um, things where you don't have to even cut. You can colour them in, but they just pop out the page. Oh, nice. um, so there's none of the cutting, and they were and there were good instructions on them, and it was very easy to do. Now I'm running a session on hexaflexagons in my school's enrichment week, which is the last week of our summer term, where everyone goes on trips and stuff. So I feel like I've now um, got more to go on here. So I, I've made different types of hexaflexagons that I've not not hexaflexagon. Sorry, this is a tetraflexagon. I've never seen one of those before, so that was fun. And then we also did some pop-up cues and stuff like that. Anyway, it was just fun. It was just like, after lunch, I'm going to just spend an hour and a half playing with paper. And I loved it. And there is like, I know what you mean when you say it's not proper maths. But there is, it, like it, it gets kids talking about you know properties what? of it, yes, shapes and stuff Well, right? kind of. Some of this stuff does. Some of the stuff we did today. I, I think the, the hexaflexagons... Don't so much get... I don't think there's, there's much in terms of learning about geometry. Right. But I do think that... They go home because I saw I saw some some normally slightly disengaged um, students leaving my hexaflexagon lesson last year, hugely excited that they got one working. Yes. and you know they're going to go home and talk to their parents about what they did in maths, which is just a lovely thing. Yes, um, and they they will talk about the quirky lady on yes. the video because yes, yes, yes. that's because my heart is the sort of thing you talk about. And I think so. I think it does. You're right. It gets them talking about maths. It's just enrichment. Yes. Um, and I think there should always be room for some enrichment. You're right. Um, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what, John. I'm going to draw a distinction here. I reckon this goes back to what we were talking about about coursework tasks before. I hope this comes out right. There's almost for these end of term kind of project mm -hmm. things. I think there's. I've just made this up now on the spot, so this is going to be wrong. I think there's four types of them. Right? Yeah. So on a spectrum, right? 
at the kind of, well, let's say five. I'm, I'm literally, I'm making I wish I'd never started this. <laughs> one. Right. So at the far end, so bear with me here, you've got, let's not do anything at the end of term. Let's just keep teaching the curriculum. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's far end of the, yeah. the spectrum. Your next one along, I think, is these coursework tasks where yeah. they're different, but crucially, kids are thinking about the maths all the time. Yeah. The way they're designed is you're focused in on the deep structures yeah. of the problems and the maths. Next one along, and I'm not saying this is going the right way or the wrong way, is something I think like hexaflexigans, where there is bits of it that are, let's say, for want of a better phrase, distracting in the sense that they're doing a bit of colouring, yeah. maybe a bit of cutting, maybe a bit of fold, folding, but there's good maths is in there, yeah. and it's... and the distractions aren't so much that they stop you getting to the good maths quickly, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Now, then you've got the, there's two more to go if my maths is right here. Then you've got the next kind of breed of these is what I used to do, which are your classic end of term projects like design a bedroom, measure the car park, oh, yeah. plan a meal, where you think that you're doing a lot of maths, but what are the kids thinking about there when you're designing a bedroom? They're cutting out the flipping Argos catalogue. They're saying, uh, I want to have yellow carpet. I'm going to have the most expensive telly, blah, 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 blah. That's when I think that the good maths is in there, but they get so distracted by the surface structures yeah, yeah. of getting the most expensive thing, gluing, sticking, yeah. I'm having the most high tech thing, or as I'm Watson says, holding the rope, all this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. that you almost kid yourself that they're doing maths, yeah. but in fact that they're not. And then at the very far end, you've got things like, and I've been guilty of this myself, things like Pirate Game, Pirate or, game. or even stick a DVD on. And there's not too much different yeah. Yeah. between them in terms of the mathematics yeah. that involved. And I think that's almost your spectrum. And yeah. it's where you decide to go on well, that. Well, it's that, it's that last one you mentioned that happens um, quite a lot. <laughs> quite a lot unfortunately and the thing is that I know there'll be a lot of people saying well it should just be the first one you mentioned so teaching right to the end mm. but that's not um, that's not practical no, no. if there's events going on Christmas half of them are out practicing the, the nativity or something or yeah. you know the carol service and then there's at end of term there's people might have started trips and stuff so quite often you've got half the class there yes. and if you're trying to teach yes. their GCSE spec that's not a good idea yeah, to teach yeah, yeah, yeah. a topic to half of the class. You want to wait till they're all of back. Course. So that's so anyone that's sort of saying there shouldn't be, it should just be teaching right to the end. I think there are sometimes lessons where you think you've got half a class out or you've got half a lesson because there's an assembly. Yes. And then you do need, I think, some lovely maths enrichment. Exactly. Um, and yeah, I'm not, I, I am the only person in my department that's not a fan of lobster game and stuff like that. <laughs> but um, but I certainly am, I am a big hexaflexican fan. And it's the one thing. And the other thing I do is, um, I have a, I have a, uh, I like to talk about Fermat's last theorem, and I'm, I'd have a whole session on that. That, and so like that's the sort of thing. I mean, talking about the history of maths, like that's like wonderful, and we should make time for that. So uh, Christmas has come early with that one, Joe. That's what the kids will be saying. <laughs> right, fantastic. So um, I went to uh, developing excellence in maths by Simon Singh. Now this was an interesting session. Basically, I've heard Simon speak a couple of times, and obviously a massive name. And um, he introduced three projects to us, um, and I'll put links to these on the on the show notes. So project one was Who Wants to Be a Mathematician, which is a competition in the US that's now in the UK. It's all online. It's completely free. It's aimed at sixth form students. 
and basically it's a little competition and the winner of the UK goes to the US and it's the whole process about this it was was about stretching our most able students mm-hmm. so that one was who wants to be a mathematician was a competition for six form students then his big one is called the parallel project yeah. um, it's aimed at year sevens and eights at the moment but anyone can have a go younger or older it's a weekly maths challenge yeah you, it's completely free students uh, you sign your kids up to it students get an email every Friday its aim is and I thought this was interesting to stretch the stronger, more motivated students. Um, Simon's making no claims that this is for everybody. Uh-huh. This is to push yeah. your, your very, very best. Uh, each kind of weekly challenge is a topic unit called a parallelogram. They take around about 30 minutes. They include videos, articles, maths challenge questions, and so on. Kids submit the solutions online on a su- and they get the solutions back on a Sunday evening. It's all marked by the teacher. Now, Simon was adamant that this isn't something... That not necessarily that you should use as a kind of maths club thing. Mm. It should be kids independently going off and kind of doing this thing on their own, um, which I thought was interesting. And then finally, you know, this is this is, people won't like this. Project three is called the Top Top Math Set Project. Oh. <laughs> so this isn't aimed at the top set. It's aimed at the top top set, right? So it, and it, Simon's argument here was he says lots of kids do maths in this country in terms of post sixteen. Yeah. The, the uptake's good. Yeah. But not enough of them become excellent in maths compared to other high performing jurisdictions. Right. And okay. he says there's five reasons for this. We have a focus on low and middle ability students at post sixteen, not necessarily aiming at the higher. Really. The curriculum, or and in fact, even at a, a key stage three and four. The curriculum is tailored to the majority, not the minority. And he's saying all these are logical, but uh, this this is his view. The top grades are not challenging enough. I thought this was interesting. Typically, the top set consists of the top 25% of kids ability-wise, which is very broad. And you end up, again, teaching more towards the kids towards the bottom of that top set than the very top end. Oh, I disagree with so much of this. But I'll tell you what, I did too, but that one struck a bit of a chord for me. See see if I can sell you on this one, man. So I um, I had a top set a couple of years ago, um, and a couple of kids in there, one of them Josie, who I I talk about a lot, um, and, and another girl in there. And a lot of the time I used to think to myself, they're probably going to be all right. They're going to get an A star. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to provide them with stuff to do, but I wouldn't actively sit down and focus my attention on them thinking, I'm going to actively stretch you this lesson. It would be more like, I'm going to provide them resources. Yeah. Off you go, give me a shout if you need any help. Whilst the rest of my attention is on the kids who are probably going to get a B, but if I really push them, I could probably get them up to an A or maybe A to A star. Yeah. So I do kind of see what he means there, mm-hmm. that if you had to choose you naturally gravitate towards focusing on the majority as opposed to the minority. And possibly in top sets, that's more the lower end of that top set than the upper end. So okay. I thought there was something in that. Possibly. I mean, I really, I, I just don't think, I think I'm, I've taught, I taught at a grammar school before. I now teach uh, top set year 11. I did last year as well. I haven't always, I haven't only taught top sets, but I, um, the people I am picturing when I'm planning my lesson are my very cleverest. Right, okay, So, sure. uh, But I think I'm just, I am... That's just what I do. I mean, that's like my strength is getting loads of grade nines. And But I would agree with some of the other points. Like, for example, so disappointing how low the grade boundary was for grade nine last year. Like, that does not differentiate properly at the top end. Yes. You know, to get It was 79% or something to get a grade nine, whereas I was hoping it would be 90-something percent. So I don't feel that the current grade boundaries tell us at all who our brightest are. But. 
Yeah, so there's, so, there's some, was, some things yeah. I agree and with. And it was, there, I'll yeah. tell you what, I like things that make me think and yeah, challenge yeah. me, so I like that. Anyway, the top, top math set project, remember that second top in there, <laughs> um, it was started before schools in 2016. Again, it starts with year seven. Um, it's top 10% of kids, Simon recommends you start with, and then narrow it down, top 5% and so on. Um, it's for kids who've mastered everything at primary school. The cost of it, ready for this, it's just one additional full-time teacher. So, just, oh. <laughs> but potentially there's a there's a subsidy available of fifteen thousand uh, pounds for right. it, and um, they need three more London schools for 2018, 2019, and then more schools for 2019, 2020. Anyway, I'm going to put a link to those three things. Certainly, the parallel project is almost a no-brainer if you've got a child in year seven and eight who you think I need to push them on a little bit. Yeah, and, and this is the thing. It. So this is where if as if as if a parent is saying you're not pushing my child yes, enough yes, then you yes, say put, get, uh, can you join at that any time yeah year? absolutely because right. I remember at the, uh, when I used to work at the grammar school we had the Turing I can't remember what it's called the, the yeah, Turing competition like where they, yeah, they do code breaking and it was just it, again it was a similar thing where you just basically tell them how to set up their team yeah. which they do on the website yeah. and then they're just then off on their own exactly. so it's no work required by the school and then you really are providing the enrichment and the stretch exactly there's and, no marking and that's all, no that's all, that's all they need yeah, yeah. and it's, yeah, yeah. It, so it's a lovely idea I mean I would say in this country we're very fortunate the UKMT does a lot for those those students that need stretching and, and at primary the MA has the primary math challenge which is brilliant so we do have quite a lot but I do I see where he's coming from that he's, regular thing regular yeah. enrichment each yeah. week yeah. sign the kids up so a bit of time in terms of getting the set up informing yeah. parents and so on but then just let them go and he showed yeah, us some of the nice. stuff and there's some really nice activities so yeah. I thought that was good it's so that's yeah. that's parallel project and for your six formers who wants to be a mathematician and then your top top math set project right Joe so uh, last couple of sessions now one each so what did you do uh, next right so I went to um, David Aitchison's session uh, fact and fiction in the history of maths and um, he has recently written a book called The Calculus Story, which is doing very well. And, and you're is, claiming um, this is bigger than my book. I'm right? afraid I did claim that, yeah. I think, he, I think he said New Scientist. He said that it was... Never heard of that. I think it, that? it came out... I think his book came out just before Christmas and New Scientist listed it in the top 10 books to own this Christmas kind of thing. That's a big deal. Um, he, he says he's already... You know, it's already on... It's, it's, it's basically I mean, saying like crazy. Si- who reads The New Scientist anyway? So I'm not happy about this. <laughs> um, he's, you know, he's amazing. Like, he... He name dropped so many mathematicians. Like he has had the most amazing life. He was the most fascinating um, mathematician, um, knowledgeable about all sorts of things. And he he showed us all this cool stuff from his life, where he used to play guitar in a basement in Oxford. And he and he just told us all these amazing stories nice. about things he'd done. Um, so I um, it was fascinating. I mean, I again, it's a bit like when um, I went to the Chris Bolton session at Maths Conference, and I sorry, Maths Con fourteen or whatever it was, and I sort of afterwards said, you know, it was just enrichment for me so I don't have a huge amount to say because I just basically sat there um, fascinated and not writing much down just really interested um, but um, one thing that I really liked um, was he he showed us some pictures of him he'd gone to Paris with his wife and they'd gone around taking pictures of him standing with French street signs and the street signs were the, the streets were named after um, scientists and mathematicians, particularly in the field of fluid dynamics. Like because he, he was so interested in that that he was going around Paris looking for these street signs. Um, and he said that it's really good that when he's then sort of lecturing or teaching students that they can see, he shows them those pictures and then their student his students can see how much enthusiasm he has, like how much he loves fluid dynamics yes, so yes. much so that when he's on holiday yeah, yeah. and it just really reminded me of something that happened so I um, I was doing algebraic 
proof with my year 11s last week. And um, just as a little aside, I told them about um, Fermat's Last Theorem because it's like, I just love that. And I, and I started by showing them, explaining the theorem, which is the, anyone can understand it. It's like the most simple thing. And so I, I talked to them about Pythagorean triples and I talked to them about how, you know, if, if, if the powers weren't twos, yep. would we be able to find the integers? And then I showed them this, and it was amazing because I showed them the stuff from uh, Simon Singh's book, in fact, The Mathematics and the Simpsons. And I showed them how Homer Simpson appeared to have found a solution and then um and then when i showed them the next slide which was which sort of showed that it was a near miss it's solution, really close and it? it's amazing isn't there it? were boys on the back row in my year 11 lesson out of their seat they were standing up because they were so excited by this and i was That's like great. whoa what's happened here they were loving it and then i showed them um and then one of them was like hand up dude has anyone ever proved it and i was like well i'm coming to that so i talked about andrew wiles and how when he was 10 years old, he like discovered it and then he spent his whole, you know, as in he read about it for the first time and he spent his whole life trying to solve it. And they were like fascinated. And then I ended by showing them a picture of me sitting outside the Andrew Wiles building at the University of Oxford when I went to research ed, maths and science a couple of years ago. Um, and, and it's a lovely building because it's got all the Penrose tiles on the floor and there's ne I'm next to the sign that says Andrew Wiles building. And I was just trying to make the point that they named the building after him and, you know, and I was sort of saying, you know, you guys can all go and be mathematicians and go and do all this amazing stuff and win prizes. And, and have buildings named after you at Oxford. And I was like, of course, some of you are going to go to Oxford, of course. So I'm really trying to, like, you know, set the high expectations. But it just reminded me, you know, when David said today in his session about how he shows his students pictures of him with these scientists and then they realise how much he loves this subject. Yes. And I realised that I did that last week. I showed them a picture and they, they, they laughed at my flip-flops, these horrible boys. Like, they were like, Miss, is that you? Why have you got flip-flops on? And I was like, it was summer. Um, but they, it was just, you know, for me to show them how excited I am yes. that I was at the Andrew Wiles building and then they're going to go home and I bet they went home and talked about well, Fermat's last theorem. It's fascinating that, Joe. So a couple of things on that. So again, I talk about it in my book that sold less than this guy's book, by the sounds of things, about how a mistake I used to make was I used to hide my love of maths from some groups, like the, the, especially the middle set, year 11s and year 10s, where you've got your cool lads in there, your cool girls in there. Yeah. I used to think the best way to relate to them was to like say, oh yeah, maths, you know, it's... Nobody likes it, it's boring, but you've just got to do it, Aww. come on. Well, it's terrible, right? Yeah. Terrible. Whereas, because I thought, if I'm more like them, yeah. I can relate to yeah. you more and so on. Whereas, you come to the realisation quickly, the first thing, you should never like be ashamed of, of who you are and all that kind of thing. But it's best just to be honest and open. Absolutely. And then, and then they they feed off your enthusiasm for it, right? That's, yeah, that's absolutely. so important. And they're like, yeah. of course they're going to think, what a nerd, what a geek. But then they're like, oh, right, he flipping loves maths. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and that's, it's just such a more healthy dynamic. I've been, I've been going to another school doing some intervention sessions with a foundation group. And I don't normally teach foundation and it's been really great for me because I've, um, they're lovely and, and I'm, it's so, I just so want them to pass yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah. really, and, and I'm loving it. Um, but they, like, I did a therefore symbol on the board, the three dots, and they genuinely never seen it before. And yeah. I was like, how can you never seen it before? Like, I do this as standard from year seven up, and I just... And then and they were like, oh, miss, so what is that? And I was like, well, you know, it's a symbol. It means therefore, if, I'm, if I say the word therefore, I'm going to write it on the board because I'm not going to write the word therefore. And they're like, oh, miss, there are other symbols. And I just went off on a tangent. And then since then, I realised that, yeah, they're not, they're not my top set year 11s. They're kids that are a bit disengaged in maths. But actually, after I went off on that tangent, I realised that the more they see my enthusiasm of maths mm. and the more I show them stuff they haven't seen before, yes. they're starting to love maths. Yeah, and it's, right. it seems right. to, I think, you know, they're, 
it's just it's just the best thing you can do is show it's, your love for the subject. Yeah, and it's a positive role model. Yeah. They don't see that often. Absolutely. You're right. And the final thing I'll just say, like she reminded me from Simon Singh's session, and I've, I've seen him speak a couple of times, and if listeners haven't seen or haven't even shown the your kids the start of the Fermat's theorem documentary have you, oh, seen, yeah. have you seen this so you can, yeah. you can you can google again on youtube and simon says there's a hd version oh, the bbc horizon um, yeah. Oh, yeah and yeah. it's currently still available on iplay for free hd version but the first i think it's like 40 seconds of yeah it, are beautiful because it's andrew wiles talking about uh, walking essentially through his mind and it's all in dark and he's stumbling around and he can kind of touch objects but he's trying to get a sense of where things are and then he just talks about one day how the lights came on and he could just see everything. And you can see him sat there in his desk and his desk's an absolute mess. Yeah. And he's talking about how the, he's, he's describing the day he made the breakthrough and he remembers the moment and he's talking about it and he just stops and he just can't talk. Yeah. And he manages to get out. Nothing else I do in my life will ever be as important as mm. that moment and then he just breaks down yeah. and I remember I showed that I showed that to um, a, a real kind of ropey year 10 class a couple of years ago and I'll be honest with you some of the kids were like what a freak this guy's. <laughs> but one lad who is was a proper a proper lad um, he, he was like whoa he loves maths and I'm like, yeah he does yeah you know he does and you, you it's hard not to respect or get caught up with somebody who's passionate about something Absolutely. right so yeah perfect okay um last thing to wrap up for me i talked about the session that me and andrew ran but um one andrew did something really interesting and i tweeted photos of this out he spoke about what is the purpose of GCSE mathematics and some of the things that he said, the purpose of GCSE is to reliably sort the cohort by mathematical ability, assess the content of the specification, measure what's valued in math and so on. But then he said, what is not the purpose of GCSE maths? And I thought this was really interesting. What is not the purpose is to give a detailed picture of students' specific strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm or to ensure students have demonstrated a level of competence in every aspect of the content. Oh, and what's, fascinating. Yeah, and, what's, and this is an example. This, this, like this is so interesting for me from an A-level point of yes. view. Yes. Because I don't know for sure they could have got a nine exactly. and they might not be able to do, say, exactly. indices or certs. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's his point, that in a limited amount of time, mm -hmm. you can only measure so much of yeah. the domain. Yeah. And that tied into what I was saying, that if we are basing teaching and learning decisions on these exams, mm -hmm. assuming just because a child got this question right on ratio, which, as you've said, was a particularly poorly mm -hmm. answered thing for the higher tier kids, but, oh, well, a kid's got question three right on ratio, so we don't need to teach that child ratio. Mm -hmm. It's it's really dodgy decision-making. So it was, yeah, I thought that was fascinating for someone in Andrew's position mm -hmm. to make it crystal clear that exams essentially... You've got to be very careful the decisions you make mm -hmm. when you give kids exams early on in the process. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Anyway, that just about wraps things up. So we are now off to the quiz. Now, <laughs> what, Joe? I'm a bit concerned about this because I, I love a quiz. Just, just uh, tell the listeners our team. What's our lineup um, up here? Go right. On. So we have got um, so the six on the team, and that is you, me, Ed Southall, who he's at Solve My Maths. So he is genius at um, maths puzzles. Of course, but strong, I think, strong, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, 
We have uh, Megan Greenan, who is a good friend of mine, who um, is, uh, in fact, used to teach at the school that I currently teach at, and she is, um, I can't remember what her special subject is. Yeah, she didn't really have one, because no, you, you, you were saying kids TV, and it oh, turns yes. out a youngest child's 17 or yeah, so, 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 yeah. I don't know why she's on the team. <laughs> and then we've got um, Andrew Taylor, so head of maths yeah. at AQA. So if grade boundaries or something come up, he will be very good at yeah. that. Yeah, yeah that'd be good. And then got. we actually, at, um, la at last check, we had a vacancy on our team, so we're yeah. going to find the cleverest person, looking, uh, the cleverest looking person in the room, and they're going to come on our team because we have potential to be really embarrassed tonight. We have because my I have two specialist subjects. So the first is the music of Oasis, nineteen ninety four to nineteen ninety seven. Right. Anything after be here now, I struggle with. So, and also my other specialist subject. I don't know if I told you this, Joe, is uh, types of apple. Right? Types of apple. So I used to work in Ruth's supermarket on fruit and veg, and I can spot a golden delicious from a Royal Gala and a Braeburn. So as long as round one is Musical Oasis 1994 to 97, round two is types of apple. Fantastic. But we've heard a rumour that the rounds, the answers all involve numbers. I believe that's, that is the case for this quiz, yes. So, and I, we, we know quite a few numbers. Yes, but I don't so, think any apples have numbers. No, in. but we know like 7 and 13. And I, I, so know, I know a fair few fair numbers. Few numbers. Yeah. So fingers crossed. So listeners, we will let you know how we get on. Or we, not. <laughs> if you hear no more of this quiz, it's not going well. <laughs> Um, stay tuned to Twitter tonight. We may even tweet out a few questions uh, at some point as well. So anyway, <laughs> hope you found that useful. We've got two more of these to do. Another busy day tomorrow, and then one more to wrap up Friday. So all that remains for me to do is to thank the new. Remind me again, marketing chair of publicity and media for the MA. Rolls off the tongue, <laughs> Joe Morgan, and to thank you, loyal listeners, for listening. And um, hope you're enjoying these and find it useful. Take care of yourselves, and bye. For now.